0: This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And as always, I am here with Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Good afternoon, Alan. Hi, Darren. Well, it has been quite a fortnight of news and as an indicator here, these are the things that we don't have time to talk about today. Opposition leader Bill Shorten has just given a 5,000-word speech at the Lowy Institute on Labor's foreign policy. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been engaged vigorously in bilateral diplomacy with both China and India. And a far-right candidate has just won the presidency of Brazil. While conscious of the news getting ahead of us, we expect we will devote some time to each of these issues in a fortnight's time. Today, we are going to talk about the Morrison government's latest ideas on two critical Middle East policy issues, Jerusalem and the Iran nuclear deal. From there, we will pivot to the question of human rights in the context of murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar. We cannot avoid Donald Trump, unfortunately, and this week it will be his administration's withdrawal from two multilateral treaties and institutions. And finally, we'll touch on a couple of less reported aspects of Australian diplomacy regarding the death penalty and trade negotiations. First, in the heat of the recent Wentworth by-election, in which former Prime Minister Malcolm Temple had vacated his seat, where the majority of the government of one seat was in play, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, in what was assumed to be an attempt to appeal to the many Jewish voters living in the electorate, announced that he would consider a move of the Australian Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He characterised this as a review of the policy rather than a firm decision. Of course, moving the embassy was one of Donald Trump's most controversial foreign policy decisions as president. Now, this wasn't all. Morrison also announced that he would review Australia's support of the Obama administration-negotiated Iran nuclear deal and also have Australia vote against Palestine's leadership of the group of 77 developing nations at the United Nations. The Prime Minister claimed that the timing of these announcements, or reviews, had nothing to do with the by-election, but was in fact driven by the UN vote itself. Interestingly, if both these decisions were made, it would also bring Australia into alignment with the Trump administration. Now, it didn't work out very well for the coalition government as the Liberal Party lost Wentworth, and it may have backfired with both Jewish and non-Jewish voters in the electorate, and I guess the rest of the Australian public, given the decline of support for the Liberal candidate in the last days of the election. Now, normally foreign policy doesn't come up in elections very often, um, and this episode makes one wonder whether or not foreign policy might become a bigger election issue in the future. But I think most saliently, not only did the move not succeed in winning the the Wentworth by-election, it had major consequences for Australia's bilateral relationships, creating tensions with our Muslim-majority neighbouring countries, especially Indonesia, at a time when Prime Minister Morrison and Indonesian President Jokowi are working to conclude a free trade agreement. Alan, lots of interesting angles to this decision for watchers of Australian foreign policy, and that's before you even get into the merits of the decisions themselves. What is most interesting to you about this entire episode?
1: Well, what's interesting to me is that I, I thought it was an example of both bad policy and bad politics, so sort of a, a double whammy, if you like. It, it obviously was to do with the Wentworth by-election, but it doesn't seem to have had any useful effect there. Indeed, after the announcement was made, liberal preferences actually went uh, yes. down, according to what we've uh, what we've seen. So I'm not sure that this will encourage other politicians to inject foreign policy <laughs> into uh, into the election anytime soon. It was a. It was a quite substantial breach for or or, um, uh, divergence. It was only, of course, a proposal for a review, but everyone knew what that uh, meant. But it was a divergence from not only past Australian foreign policy, but the foreign policy of this very government Mm. itself. I don't think that the Jerusalem question is quite as interesting as the Iran review, which has received much less uh coverage in the uh in the in the media but australia has for a very long time now carefully differentiated its relationships with iran from those of the us and uh, and um, other the brits and uh, other europeans we've kept our diplomatic uh, mission in tehran for long periods we've had a, a small but you know worthwhile economic uh, trade relationship. Both sides of politics have supported the the Iran nuclear deal. So when the review comes out, and I firmly expect that to be sometime in the week before Christmas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Boxing Day or something or boxing like Day, that. Yes. Friday, Friday before Christmas or Boxing Day, one or the other. I, I, I think um, especially now that um, Malcolm Turnbull has got back into the act by advising the uh, the government that uh, the decision to move the, uh, the embassy would be detrimental to our relations with Indonesia. I strongly expect that current policy will be reaffirmed, that is unless the government decides that it wants to go the full Trump before the uh, next election. Uh, but I think the, the arguments in, in favour of um, of uh, con- continuation of what we're doing from an Australian point, point of view make uh, very good sense.
0: It's an interesting point you raise about the fact that we have a diplomatic mission in Tehran, but the United States doesn't. Does that give us any particular influence uh, or importance in conducting diplomacy as a, some kind of sort of intermediary between the two sides?
1: Uh, not so much as an intermediary but it's certainly given us a value to uh, to others because our diplomats have uh, understand they've been there they've been sort of uh, uh, engaging with the Iranian leadership so there's always been a lot of interest from other friends and allies in talking to us about our understanding of the uh, of the situation in Iran so it, it, it has been an asset for us, I think, in terms of uh, Middle East policy generally,
0: which we would lose if we were to back out of a deal. Well, if from... we were to if we were
1: to back away from the deal, I imagine that that would be one of the consequences. Mm. Okay.
0: Well, moving to our second topic, which we were going to discuss in our last episode, but held off because of breaking news, and this, is, of course, is the death of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who walked into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul, and did not come out. It seems over the past couple of weeks that it is clear that Khashoggi is dead and that he was killed in a premeditated attack, to use the words of the Saudi government. But it's unknown right now the extent to which this decision to kill him was made at the highest levels, especially uh, the involvement of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, who had previously been fated by the West and especially the Trump administration. From an Australian perspective, and I, I assume here, listeners, that you are familiar with this macabre, very grim episode. From an Australian perspective, Prime Minister Morrison stated that we deplore the killing and called upon the Saudi government to cooperate fully with the Turkish investigation. Australia also pulled out of the Saudi Future Investment Summit, commonly termed Davos in the desert. That's, however, all that we've done so far, presumably while the government awaits the results of the investigation and for more information to come out. And I think it's interesting to juxtapose these grim events with the decision made by the Morrison government in the last few weeks to impose sanctions and travel bans on five Myanmar military generals accused of leading the crackdown on the country's Rohingya population in 2017, which saw around 700,000 refugees flee to Bangladesh. A UN report released in August had accused the military of a systematic campaign targeting civilians, including enforced disappearances and mass rapes, and raised the prospect of prosecutions for crimes against humanity and genocide. An interesting wrinkle in this is while the commander-in-chief of the military was not sanctioned by Australia, Facebook took down his verified page after the release of the report, and there has been some excellent reporting by the New York Times in particular about how the Myanmar military had used Facebook to promote the campaign targeting the mostly Muslim Rohingya minority. Now, again, a lot of angles to these issues, and of course, that we know more about what's happened in Myanmar than we do about what transpired inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I think, oh. thanks thanks to the the Turks, we have a, uh, a very potentially vivid, vivid, uh, that's true. But we still don't want to debate hypotheticals. So what I yeah. wanted to do was step back um, from the details of these events and try to frame the trade offs facing Australia in responding to these human rights abuses. And I want to draw that frame by noting that Donald Trump, um, while somewhat criticising the Saudi government, has been very open in expressing his unwillingness to reduce arms sales to the Saudi military, arguing that the benefits to the American economy and American jobs were obvious, and that if the US didn't supply weapons, Russia or China would. Our economic relationship in Australia with the kingdom is not as substantial, though we have sold military equipment in the past, and Defence Minister Christopher Pine has said Australia is looking to sign a formal defence industry agreement with Saudi and the UAE. So, Alan, using these as a sort of a, you know, an entry point, what is the decision-making calculus of the Australian government in responding to human rights abuses abroad? Why do we respond forcefully to some issues um, and less so with others?
1: I think there are two particular um, sort of dimensions to that. One one. Is that any government responds forcefully when they've got journalists asking them what <laughs> they're going to do, and that's understandable and uh, and proper. So one of the one of the factors is is this big news with the, which the Khashoggi uh, killing uh, absolutely was, and the other is how important is this to Australia's interests? Where do our, where does our balance uh, come, and the uh, Myanmar? Uh, issue is more uh, important um, uh, for that for that reason. Uh, Khashoggi, um, I mean, uh, uh, horrific, uh, stomach churning accounts uh, that we've uh, heard, and um, uh, but it's a it's an example of how human stories affect foreign uh, foreign policy in a way that, for example, Saudi uh, involvement in the Yemen. Uh, civil war with, yes. with ten ten thousand civilian uh, deaths uh, there hasn't sort of raised yeah. all that much uh, interest in the, the West. Captured the imagination. But this one particular person, and this one particular person was a journalist, and so and journalists are understandably, uh, uh, you know, interested in uh, in that uh, angle as uh, as well. So that that elevated it in a in a. Uh, In a new way, but but there's in fact not very much that Australia can can do apart from what we've already done. Uh, You know, calling in the Saudi ambassador, which is a you know diplomatic term term of art, uh, uh, and uh, expressing uh, concern and disappointment, as you mentioned, we've withdrawn from a couple of uh, events there. PM said he was um, monitoring the situation and would take, um, I think I'm quoting him correctly, all necessary steps to pursue justice, which Mm. is a pretty big claim uh, on his part. Uh, Defence have started downplaying the importance of uh, those uh, efforts to boost uh, defence exports uh, by saying that... uh, uh, shucks, only at the early stages, not a high priority yep. at the stage, and uh, we're not currently inactive. You know, so you know, go away. And it'll be interesting to see if the freeze continues and um, and uh, how this works itself out. Rohingya, there is sort of a a, a, a much uh, more complex uh, set of issues and a much more immediate practical. Um, Im- importance for Australia. It's a refugee issue mm. in our neighbourhood. It's a potential uh, source of um, you know extremism um, uh, building up there in uh, in res- response to the extremism of the uh, uh, of uh, some of the uh, Buddhists in uh, in Myanmar itself. We've got to uh, we've got to make sure that we're working along with our ASEAN. Neighbors, in all of this, we certainly want to um, send the strongest uh, possible uh, message. In the in the light of that, uh, again
0: horrific UN uh, human rights report on it all. Is it just me, or does it feel like the West, and I'm not just meaning Australia here, but I mean more generally, is being a bit softer on human rights abuses than in the past, or has there always been sort of an ebb and flow to these things?
1: Oh, there's always been there's always been an ebb and flow to these things and and a of, uh weighting of interests against uh uh against um the you know concerns about the particular human rights uh dimensions there's no there's nothing wrong with that i don't i mean foreign policy is always about about trade-offs and, uh, and you know, working out the best way of doing things and that's not always going to be the same in, in every uh, situation. The only Australian government that I can uh, remember that has addressed the human rights issue consistently and firmly was uh, Gareth Evans's uh, 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 foreign ministership um, when uh, we did, I think... More consistently than than at any other time, go in and complain, including to the to the Americans and uh, and everyone else. When we saw the uh, human rights uh, violations um, occurring, making an absolute pest of ourselves, the Australian <laughs> diplomats hated it because they were sent in to lecture yes. people all over the world. But there was a consistency um, about it then. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's uh, any different now from the way it uh, has. Uh, has been in the past.
0: I have a sense that such consistency today would be even more costly. I think of how Saudi Arabia reacted to Canada's uh, critiques of of them locking up or uh, you know, curtailing the freedoms of some, some, I think, female activists. Yeah, uh, huge economic costs uh, for a social media storm, or at least a dispute that began on social media in a critical Facebook post or a tweet. I can't remember what it was. It just seems even more difficult now for (laughs) Australia to balance different sets of interests. Yeah, well, I I thought Donald Trump
1: was uh, unusually frank Mm. and direct in his laying out of the dilemma. Uh, On the one hand, they've probably done something we don't like, he said. uh, But on the other, there are all these jobs and I think, you know, he went up to... Millions at one mm, point. The I'm numbers, sure, yeah. the numbers varied according to uh, just like his Tom's election victory. The yeah, numbers but, vary. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but uh, but you know, he, he was he was laying out something which is normally below the surface of government uh, announcements and all this.
0: Okay. Well, keeping with Donald Trump, we need to talk about the latest moves of the Trump administration to. Withdraw, uh, I guess, uh, from two significant international treaties. The first is the Universal Postal Union, and the second is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty. Let's begin with the INF Treaty, which was negotiated between the United States and the USSR during the Cold War to limit certain nuclear weapons, specifically all ground launched ballistic and cruise missiles with a range of 500. To 5,500 kilometres. The US and Russia regularly accuse each other of breaching the treaty, but despite this, it has remained operative. And just last year, the Trump administration said it would continue compliance with the INF and pressure Russia to comply. The US ambassador to Russia, John Huntsman, only a few months ago described it as, quote, probably the most successful treaty in the history of arms control. The move appears to be influenced significantly by National Security Advisor John Bolton. In 2010, he suggested the U.S. should abandon the agreement. So that's the INF Treaty. On the other side, we have the Universal Postal Union, the UPU. And the U.S. withdrawal here comes from a different impetus, the trade war against China, which has been benefiting, the U.S. argues unfairly, from rules created to promote trade and economic growth for developing countries. According to Washington Post columnist and academic Daniel Dresner, the the US's problem predates the Trump administration because the rules of the UPU distort the market in international shipping for packages. The Financial Times quotes some statistics that the UPU gives lower costs for developing countries like China, meaning that Chinese retailers can sell small goods such as mobile phone charges in the United States for less than domestic retailers can the price of a 4.4 pound package shipped from one US state to another is between around $20, while China Post pays $5 to ship that same package anywhere in the United States. And these are figures from the US Postal Service. This meant that the Postal Service lost more than $130 million handling imports from across the world in 2016. However, Despite these disadvantages, of course the UPU has a lot of benefits too regarding international cooperation on counterterrorism and drug trafficking. So Alan, you've got these two treaties, one dealing with weapons, missiles, nuclear weapons, the other one dealing with the post, the mail. How do we attack this?
1: Well let's start let's start with the UPO. They're both they're UPU, they're both of course examples of uh, the US again, of the Trump administration taking on, uh, multilateral institutions I have to tell you that until one of our podcast listeners uh, drew my attention uh, to this I had barely thought about the universal postal Union it was established in 1874 it's the oldest second oldest multilateral organization in um, in existence it had been pottering along <laughs> doing 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 good works for all these uh, you know more than uh, more than a, a century, and suddenly it uh, it becomes an an issue. The uh, the UPU is the reason why if an Australian wants to send a letter or parcel to her aunt in Mumbai or a um, university friend in Munich, uh, she just goes down to the post office and puts an Australian stamp on it Mm. and it gets delivered Mm. at the other end so it doesn't have to get a German or an Indian postage uh, um, stamp. And the idea originally was that um, this would be vaguely reciprocal. That is, uh, the state in which the letter or parcel was uh, produced would um, uh, pay the costs of the final delivery to the door and then that would even out, even out out over over time and um and uh so it has until i think in the american case i saw it only about three years ago that uh that technology again um what a change people aren't writing letters anymore but they are sending uh, uh, parcels um, and um, you know e-commerce has uh, has uh, facilitated that and at the moment because it, takes, it costs more to deliver a parcel in the US than it does in China, uh, the US Postal Service is, is in effect uh, subsidising the Chinese. It's not, a, it's not being paid back to the Chinese, but it's a, it's a, a, it's a subsidy. So um, the US wants to work on that. We'll, we'll see. I can't see how they can withdraw. I think sort of pulling apart a <laughs> very useful <laughs> um, uh, con- convenience where we can ship things a- a- across the, the world would be would be huge but presumably they just, just want to um, generate uh, pressure to uh, to get change INF I think is a more serious issue for um, Australia as it is for uh, for Europe as you were saying it it um, uh, bans the US and Russia from building and deploying conventional and nuclear ground-launched okay. ballistic and cruise missiles with a range of 500 to 5,500 kilometres. So it's a whole class of weapons <clears throat> that the US and, uh, and Russia agreed uh, not to build. There's no question, I think, that the Russians aren't fully in compliance. Certainly NATO, not just the US, mm. agrees uh, with uh, this. But the consequences of pulling out uh, and opening up a new arms race for this, uh, these um, uh, um, uh, medium range uh, missiles is is very profound in, uh, in Europe itself, but also in this part of the world. One of the argument that some of the Americans make is that this treaty does not ban the Chinese or the... Or, as it happens, the Indians or the North Koreans for uh, for uh, uh, from building missiles of this uh, distance, and both of them have it. Uh, Harry Harris, the former head of the Indo-Pacific uh, Command, told the Senate Arms Armed Services uh, Committee some time ago that he thought there were reasons for uh, that the Americans needed this sort of thing in uh, in Asia. And you're already seeing. Um, bits of the commentariat in the states, suggest that if uh, the Americans did uh, pull out, then stationing of intermediate range ballistic missiles in northern Australia might be an option oh, to, uh, to address the, the Chinese. So all we can say at this point, I think, is that if there's a change of government in Australia next year, uh, an incoming Labor government will have some immediate tensions to resolve between its commitments to nuclear disarmament, and these were set out by Penny Wong in her address to the AAA conference just a week or so, and the immediate realities of a new nuclear arms race. So this is not just one for the Europeans.
0: Should we worry about these withdrawals through the lens of the rules-based order? It seems to me that there are a lot of... In these two issue areas, there are specific concerns the United States has, and it's trying to prosecute its national interests. For good or for ill, but it's coming up against old institutional frameworks that do a lot of good, um, but and it's the Trump's administration's proclivity just to you know sort of walk away uh, the art of the deal, I suppose. Is the can are these isolated sort of issue specific? incidents or are they further eroding the idea that multilateral cooperation through treaties and institutions is the best way of organising international affairs?
1: Oh, I think very much the latter. Treaties, you know, have a life. They're, they're perfectly, you know, respectable and consistent with the rules-based order to amend treaties from yeah. from time to time as circumstances change. So I've got no particular uh, uh, problem with the idea of the U.S. announcing that it's withdrawing from the uh, INF, uh, in principle, it can do that within the framework of the uh, of the uh, rules-based order. I think it's a very bad idea, uh, myself, because the consequences for its allies um, are, uh, will be will be very um, will be very considerable. But I don't I don't see it as a challenge to the rules-based order in the way that I see the threat to withdraw from the WTO uh, as a challenge, because there are other dimensions to the arms control uh, regime. Now, as it happens, the US is also uh, threatening to uh, have a look at other uh, uh, parts of uh, that. And so I think we're in for a a, uh, rocky period. So if the Trump administration had other great ideas, if it was saying this is no longer fit for purpose... Um, but we want to, this is a path we want to go down, yes. which will continue to manage um, uh, you know, um, arms, arms control mm. in the uh, world. You'd, you'd feel much easier about it than you
0: do at the moment. But not deploying dozens of missiles yes, not, not, not around uh, breaking Eastern out. Europe and northern yeah. Australia, yes, of course. Okay, finally, Alan, two smaller items uh, that have appeared in Australia's foreign policy over the past couple of weeks... First, uh, on the 15th of October, the foreign minister launched a strategy for the abolition of the death penalty. To quote the press release, the strategy outlines practical steps that ministers, parliamentarians and Australia's network of embassies and missions can, can take to advance the goal of global abolition. Alan, this is the kind of thing that generates a press release and nobody pays attention to it. Uh, but as a practitioner of Australian foreign policy, why is this one? Why did this one catch your eye?
1: Well, come because precisely for that reason, uh, to remind us that there's a lot goes on in foreign policy and in Australian, yeah, quite creative uh, policy making, that receives almost no attention uh, from the uh, from the media, um, or from the um, uh, from the public, and the actions that the uh, Government is taking on the uh, on the death death penalty strategy. I think, uh, I mean, they they follow on. I think from uh, decisions that we made at the uh, at the time that uh, uh, the Indonesians uh, executed uh, the uh, the two Australians. Um, but it's it's something which is distinctively mm-hmm. uh, Australian. Um, it's I think. Uh, important. It's bipartisan. There's mm. no difference between the two uh, two parties on this. It sets us apart from some of our close allies. The U.S., of course, is still um, in favour of uh, the uh, death penalty. Mm-hmm. China is the other major uh, proponent of the death penalty. In our own region, I noticed that Malaysia has just announced that it's uh, going to abolish okay. the uh, the death penalty, but Singapore. Uh, is going ahead. So, look, it's not, a, it's not a, a big deal, but it's an example of the way in which behind, uh, below the, the sort of horizon of public attention, uh, diplomacy uh, goes on with trying to shape the world in ways that, uh, that we, you know, accord with our beliefs and norms.
0: And in that same vein, then, the second item is our trade minister, Simon Birmingham, just returning from a trip to Canada and the United States. And the Canada visit is especially interesting because he attended a meeting of 13 trade ministers, and they were obviously Australia and Canada, and then Brazil, Chile, the EU, Japan, Kenya, Korea, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Singapore, and Switzerland. Notice that neither the US nor China were there because they were not invited. Now, speaking with reporters, Birmingham said, and I quote, I think it's in some ways a positive that this discussion is one without the two giants who are creating such tensions in trade being present, because it is an opportunity for like-minded countries to create positive momentum and then be able to invite others, including the United States and China, to the table in a constructive way with real solutions and real direction on the table about where we want to take the WTO. Alan, is is that correct?
1: Yeah, look, I, I, I thought this was interesting um, uh, uh, too. Uh, the WTO and the future of the uh, open rules-based trading system is really vitally important to us. Uh, Australia has taken uh, action ourselves in the past. I thought the rescue of the TPP 11 was a good example of that. Much earlier, we set up the Cairns Group of um, agricultural free traders during the last successful WTO round, the, the uh, uh, Uruguay round, to put pressure on the main uh, parties to, um, to open up the agricultural sector. So at a time when um, politicians, again, on, on both sides, Maurice Payne made the point in her AAA speech uh, bill Shorten made the uh, point at uh, at lowey w- we're going to need to engage in creative crafty diplomacy of uh, of our own to get what we want i thought uh, this was a, uh, an interesting and important uh, move by uh, the people sort of middle powers of the uh, of the uh, system uh, to try and uh, shape the, um, uh, the outcomes. I mean, they agreed that there was a need for reform, there was a need to address uh, market distortions, but that the WTO needed to be reinvigorated as a negotiating forum and in particular that uh, appointments to the appellate court, uh, which at the moment the United States is, uh, is uh, vetoing, uh, need to need to be made because need to be unblocked because if they they're not the whole uh, system will grind to a halt uh, fairly soon now so it's a it's a big and immediate I- issue and it was interesting to see the uh, uh, the way the not so great powers are dealing
0: with it. I guess this begs the question of whether they can succeed. Can smaller countries, middle powers, or the non-major countries? cooperating and working together, collectively place enough pressure on the larger states to change their policy in these areas?
1: Well, they can't do it co- coercively, but they can do it by, um, by persuasion. And if you want a good example of how it can work, I think, as I mentioned before, Australia's uh, involvement in the Cairns Group during the, the Uruguay Round did uh, shame or, or force open the uh, the agricultural markets of the uh, major powers in a way that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't got in, engaged and hadn't uh, formed coalitions of uh, other like-minded states to do it. So, yeah, the, you, you you can uh, you can have an effect.
0: Okay. Well, let's wrap up with our final quick segment: reading, listening, and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening, or watching at the moment?
1: Well, you and I had uh, had a discussion the other day in which I said that I thought I really badly needed to update my knowledge of cyber policy in the international arena. So I've just read the new book by the New York Times security correspondent, David E. Sanger, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age. Uh, It's a really thoughtful but also well-written account of recent developments uh, by all the major players in the field, the United States, uh, Russia, China. Israel, Iran, North Korea. Um, Sanger argues that we haven't yet begun to think effectively about cyber as a weapon. He compares it with the early years of air power, for mm-hmm. example, and, uh, and nuclear, uh, as we struggle to find effective doctrines, for example, on deterrence uh, to use it. Uh, one reason for this, he says, is that the, it's the first weapon to come out of the intelligence community rather than out of the mm. military. And an excessive and unnecessary secrecy about what's going on is inhibiting the discussion. I think, uh, I think he's got a point there. A good book, anyway.
0: OK, well, I have been doing no reading, listening, or watching in the last fortnight, at least not of interest to our listeners. But I do want to extend an invitation or plug an event As you all know, I work at the School of Politics and International Relations here at the ANU. And on Monday, the 12th of November, 2018, from 6pm, we are having a roundtable, or you might say a post-mortem, on the US midterm elections. Apparently, I am playing the role of Tony Jones to moderate the discussion, and it will be held with my colleagues from the department as well as a few visitors it will be held at University House here on campus and for those listeners in Canberra interested there is a link on our school's website to register to attend and i will also put one up in the show notes so that's all for today's episode of Australia in the world we want to thank AIA intern Stephanie Rolf our research assistant and Manny Bovell our audio engineer Martin Pierce at the Crawford School for technical support, Rory Standing for composing our theme music, and last but not least, AAAA CEO Melissa Conley-Tyler for her constant support. Talk to you again soon.